Welcome to the Farcast. Kicking off a new year with experts and insiders to bring you insight into the investing landscape. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, January the 27th, 2022. Whoa, what a month. January effect not looking very good so far, folks. That January effect is one of those old market saws that says, as goes January, so goes the year. Well, speaking on behalf of, I think, investors everywhere, we sure as hell hope not. Anyway, we've made it thus far to uh, the end of January. And most importantly, this week, we made it on the other side of the FOMC meeting. The Federal Reserve met this week and Jay Powell had his press conference yesterday. I thought it was a great success. And, uh, and I thought it was a great success because the markets closed about even on the day where they had opened. Now, yes, they ran up on all sorts of anticipation of wonderful things from that, that Powell might say, and maybe they'll back off and maybe this, maybe that doesn't matter. After Powell spoke and the volatility sort of settled down, we were right about where we had started on the day. And indeed, through most of Thursday's trading, we are still close. The NASDAQ is losing about another percentage point as stock prices try to settle in and determine the right price for this new normal. And the new normal is a higher rate environment. Powell didn't blink, and he almost promised that he's not going to blink. In 2018, you can remember, after the Fed started hiking, they blinked. Markets really crashed. The economy was still uh, in, in flux, had not yet recovered. Economic data was not that much stronger. And they blinked and they said, okay, we've done too much too fast. Markets are too fragile. The economy's too fragile. I see no chance he's going to do that this time. I see every chance that he's going to do what he says he's going to do and raise rates three times, four times, five times this year at a quarter percent. Now, I'd like you to keep one more thing in mind. Greenspan raised rates a bunch of times at a quarter percent and a quarter percent and a half a percent like it was nothing. And back then it was a lot closer to nothing than it is now. When you had interest rates at five and 6% and he was raising by a quarter of a percent, that was a very small incremental lift. Interest rates on the 10-year treasury now are 1.8%. You raise 25 basis points, it's a big deal. You raise five times, you've raised 125 basis points. Well, we're, that's on top of 170 or 180 basis points now. That's a big deal. So watch this as we raise. We know that the Fed's going to be doing it. We have a terrific forecast for you this week. We recorded a segment for Hightower Advisors uh, earlier this week with Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, uh, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond and a current distinguished professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is an old friend of mine, a great friend of, 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 of mine and Lars, and also a regular on the forecast when we really need the inside scoop. He explains what happens in those FOMC meetings, gives us the insider's view and his very cogent view this week of what's going to happen, he thinks, this year and why he thinks there's a real risk of recession towards the end of 2023. That's big. Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst on the forecast, will also be with us. 
Dan trying to explain what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in China, how all of that is going to affect markets, and where will stocks end up through all of this. It is a great forecast. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for your cards and letters. And also, uh, we hope you hear that we've cleaned up our microphone. We had some real microphone issues. Some of you wrote in and said, Far, please do something about your microphone. It's driving me crazy. We've done it. Hope it sounds better. Thanks to all of our listeners in Naples, Florida. I'm going to end right here and get to our program. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much. more challenging. With all of these challenges going on, the U.S. economy is not in bad shape. And so joining me now, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker and Mr. Dan Mahaffey. Dr. Lacker uh, from Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, he's a Department of Economics distinguished professor and, of course, was on the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond for uh, a long time time. Terrific economist, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and uh, their program policy program director, master's degree in security studies and defense from Georgetown University and uh, studied in China and speaks Chinese. So his insights as to the Chinese culture and agenda have been uh, have been really, really helpful. And can I just say that you look really academic sitting in front of those books? I mean, the horn rims don't hurt. I might go get a pair. Uh, Jeff and I have been pretty good friends for a long time, so it's wonderful that he'll join us. Uh, Jeff, let's start with you if we can. Sure. Uh, yeah. Would you give us your assessment? Where are, we with, where are we with the economy now, the U.S. economy? How bad is inflation? You heard Senator Nichols say that um, the Fed was part of the problem in creating all of this inflation. There was too much fiscal responsibility and too much monetary stimulus. I think that's about right. Uh, the surge in inflation that we're experiencing uh, took the Fed by surprise and many others, but it's really traceable to the fiscal packages that were adopted in late 2020 and to early 2021. Uh, traditionally, uh, that's uh, resulted in a surge in spending. Um, and traditionally, monetary policy is going is supposed to be tighter, the looser fiscal policy is. So the looser, you, the more fiscal stimulus you have, you're supposed to have tighter fiscal monetary policy. Um, the uh, surge in spending uh, by American households um, just uh, couldn't be, the supply couldn't keep up with it. And so the, the result was, a surge in inflation early in the year. Um, in addition, it was exacerbated by American households shifting spending from uh, in-person types of services to, to goods more broadly. Um, the Fed uh, dismissed this at first as uh, spe special factors, base year effects, uh, you know, one-off things. But by the middle of the year, it was pretty clear that it was broadening out. By August, it was apparent that it was affecting a broad range of goods and services, and that um, it was affecting wages. Wages were accelerating uh, as labor market um, tightness was, was making itself apparent. And then in addition, you saw an increase over the summer in, in expectations about future inflation. People started to think this inflation is going to persist a while. The Fed, unfortunately, was hamstrung by um, self-imposed tactical constraints. In 2020, they began purchasing $120 billion in U.S. Treasury and mortgage-backed securities uh, every month. And they set for themselves sort of two constraints. One is that they couldn't 
they, they weren't going to raise interest rates until those purchases were done. And then second, um, they uh, set for themselves the constraint that they were going to communicate very gradually about the beginning of the process of reducing the pace of, of those purchases, process known as tapering. Um, so they were in August, we're behind the eight ball. Arguably, they should have raised rates in September. Arguably, given the information at a time, June wouldn't have been a bad time to nudge up interest really? rates. Really? Really? As, as far I back as June? Because in June, they were still saying transitory. That's what they were saying, but it was there was a chance it wasn't, and that they could have taken a, a cut on, you know, a, a, an interest rate increase um, then just to hedge their bets, but they didn't. Instead, here we are in January at this meeting. They initiated the tapering of asset purchases. The asset purchases will end by March, um, and the widespread expectation is that they're going to raise rates beginning in March. At the last meeting, the December meeting, they released projections showing that at a that the median member of the committee expects three rate increases this year. Um, markets are now expecting four. Um, it's the data, the inflation data since that meeting has been um, uh, adverse relative to expectations. Um, and so the whole question on the table for this meeting is, what's the outlook for Fed policy going forward? They've clearly pivoted to focusing on fighting inflation um, relative to a year ago when they were focused on the perceived notion that there was a lot of slack in the economy. I think what we've seen this year is that there isn't that much slack at all. Okay. Um, so at this meeting, I expect the statement to um, signal uh, rate increase in March. Um, and I expect the press conference is gonna be focused on questions having to do with how fast are they gonna raise rates and when are they going to start uh, rolling off the asset purchases, sort of undoing the asset purchases they, 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 they've made. You know, my friend, uh, uh, Kenny Polcari, who was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange for, I don't know, 30 years, uh, and is on the Farcast, which is my weekly podcast. And you've been wonderful to come on as well. well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much for doing that. Kenny says that not only is the Fed using the regional Fed presidents and governors through their speeches and other ways to sort of broadcast their intentions that they're now using Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley as they did over the weekend to kind of shock the markets and say, you're going to get four increases, you're going to get five increases. Jeremy Siegel says we're going to get one a month. I don't know where that comes from, but could it be possible that the Federal Reserve is actually strategically linking to Goldman, leaking information to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley to get their message out? I'm reluctant to comment on Fed uh, off the record communications uh, for kind of obvious reasons. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. But then on the other hand, I think it wouldn't that, surprise you if they were leaking to Goldman Sachs to get their message out. It wouldn't surprise me if the information is, is bleeding out somehow. Uh, whether inadvertently or, or, or not. But the broader point is that just looking at the data, the outlook now is for more rate increases. I think any economist, any sensible economist would come to the conclusion, yeah, four is more likely than three at this point. And you can see it in the, the futures markets too. They're predicting um, you know, what's most likely is four increases next year. I don't think that's um, likely to be fast enough. And if you, if you think back to 2004 to 2006, 
The Fed increased interest rates by a quarter point at every meeting, and they meet eight times a year, twice a quarter. So I don't know where one a month comes from. Um, but eight times a year, a quarter point each meeting was viewed as, as a gradual pace. And it was, it was described as measured pace. And the, the, the Greenspan Fed went, went out of its way to do it in a, at a steady pace like that. The Fed isn't even talking about going that fast. It's going slower than that. It seems unlikely to get it to where it needs to be um, in, in time to have a, a, an effect on inflation in 2023. How much of this is monetary policy and how much do you think is supply chain? Because if the supply chain gets alleviated, uh, wouldn't that slow the rate of inflation growth and take care of some of these problems? It, you know, this is sort of, I mean, it would um, help uh, alleviate inflation pressures if supply were to expand more elastically and more dramatically in the near term. Um, but to, to debate whether it's supply or demand, there's a famous old uh, quote. Um, I won't get the quote right, but the, the message from Alfred Marshall from the 1890s, who said, whether it's supply or demand is like debating which blade of the scissors is cutting the paper. I mean, yeah. it's both. And the Fed's responsible for doing its part to calibrate demands, to influence demand, so that it's not out of proportion with supply. And they, they clearly got that wrong last year. And that's, the, that's what resulted in the surge in inflation. And clearly, they're going to have to push this year and next to throttle back demand. One more question here before I bring Dan in, and then we're going to keep you, we're still going back and forth here. But uh, we put you in at right now as chairman of the Federal Reserve. What would you do as you're sitting and, and you have to come and talk to the press tomorrow? What would you be saying in this FOMC meeting today? You sat through hundreds of these meetings over your career. What would you be doing in that meeting? And what would you say in your presser tomorrow? I'd emphasize that uh, the Fed will do what it takes to get inflation back down to 2%. Um, and that it will uh, react to the data as it comes in, and that uh, no path of interest rates is off the table at this point. Um, I do everything I can to open the door to people thinking that um, a, a rate increase at every meeting is possible. Wow. Um, I'd be open. I would open the door to thinking that um, the Fed could roll off asset purchases relatively rapidly um, in the near future as well. How nervous would you be about the market reacting and falling a thousand points? I think um, I, I think as the Fed's uh, rate um, increases come on board, as the market adjusts to expecting more rate increases rather than later, a fall in equity valuations is inevitable. It's so inevitable. The, I think so. The Fed, the Fed knows that. Uh, if you say you're going to raise every at every meeting, or if, let's go between four and eight hikes over the balance of this year, or four and six hikes over the balance of this year, what would you expect? The Fed, the Fed knows that will have an impact on market and share prices. They expect it how much lower? What will that do to prices? Are we down 10%, 20% more? Well, if you take as a benchmark, just uh, you know, bond valuations, right? I mean, just do the math 
the present discounted value and figure out what bond yields need need to do. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a commensurate uh, fall wouldn't surprise me. So not going to go out on a limit on a number, but um, I, you know, it, it sure seems like bond rates, longer term bond rates are low. I think the bonds, the bond market seems optimistic to me about how rapidly the Fed's going to get inflation down. I think it seems optimistic about a return to a lower interest rate environment. We raised four times. That's at least a point. Would they do more than a 25 basis point hike, do you think? I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me for, to, for them to throw down a 50, but I, I, it'd be a little, it's not the, the most likely thing in the world, but it's something they ought to be considering just to get a hike on it, get a start on things as rapidly as they can. Um, I think they'll go more than one percentage point this year, though. More than one percentage point this year. Yeah. This is really fascinating and so helpful to hear from an insider and an economist, a very distinguished economist uh, like, like you. So thank you. Thanks for being with us on this week's special edition of The Farcast with Dr. Jeff Lacker and Dan Mahaffey. Join us in upcoming weeks when we have scheduled guests Jenny Harrington, Liz Young, Kenny Polcari, Jim Laventhal, and more. And now, back to this week's show, and your host, Michael Farr. Dan, how will this be received politically in Washington as the Fed increases this pace? Well, I think it's going to be a challenge as the punch bowl gets pulled away. Everyone has looked at the uh, great economic returns, the the stock market numbers, and, and you see that reflected in where uh, you know everything that the now retail investor gets into, be it bitcoins to uh, GameStop, other things have had this sort of rug pulled out from under them, and the average Joe who has just started to dabble in finance is now seeing this uh, this punch bowl get pulled away. And then they they get angry. They talk to their members of Congress. They, they wonder about this. And it just adds this sense of uh, economic malaise to see interest rates going up at the same time, portfolios are getting smaller, and grocery store shelves are empty. Uh, and that gets to, I think, the the, the frustration you saw boil over in President Biden speaking to uh, the reporter yesterday when asked about inflation. He, he was, uh, well, he didn't like that question. I, I, yeah, I, you, you introduced me as saying what, what people whisper in Washington. The thing is, they're saying it all out loud right now. <laughs> uh, you know, if you, if you politically, and we've been hearing this, uh, blame the Federal Reserve and others for the inflation that we have, if you didn't like them for the inflation, wait till they try to fix it. Um, wait, wait, wait till they try to fix it. If you didn't think uh, uh, Charlie Plosser years ago, uh, Jeff was saying, uh, as we try to tighten, every time we've tried to tighten, there's been a hue and cry that the economy is too fragile for this sort of tightening right now. Is there any validity to that kind of an argument? And you had mentioned uh, uh, on a forecast earlier in the year that perhaps you could see the economy going into recession into the second half of 2023. Still feel that way? 
I still do. And it's based on the historical record of episodes in which the Fed has tried to cool off demand to reduce inflation. Its record is relatively poor. More than half of the time, it ends up going too far and pushing uh, the economy over into a, a contraction. Um, and my guess is it's going to be hard to calibrate that this time. They're threading a needle. They got to push rates up enough to throttle back demand, but not enough for demand to fall too rapidly. And it's a really hard thing to do. You know, you, there's, there's a sort of a hair trigger thing here, always in the economy, that if the unemployment rate goes up by more than um, f- five tenths um, in the course of a few months, it goes up by two percentage points. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go up a little, without going up a lot. And that's that's the thing the Fed has to deal with, that if it if it slows things down too rapidly, it throws people on, you know, it, people are unemployed, they reduce their spending and it has this multiplier effect that t- kicks off a recession. So it's gonna be hard to do. So your suggestion is that the, that, and we've seen this any number of times, we know one, bull markets don't die of old age. More often than not, it will be a Fed action that has killed most of the big bull markets and that the risk of a fed policy error here is it sounds as high as it's ever been i think so i think it's fair dan we're hearing that joe manchin agrees with still parts of this build back better bill and that if he agrees to certain tenants of the bill that they will come back, the Democrats will come back through reconciliation and still be able to pass something over a trillion dollars. Are you seeing that, hearing that? Is that still possible and likely? I'm still hearing that, but it requires a lot of relationship repair, more than policy difficulties right now. There is agreement still on some packages. There was the Mansion proposal that had been put forward that still has things like the child tax credit, still has plenty of spending on climate. Uh, things of the, those priorities are still in there. Uh, what it's come down to, from what I hear, is that the, the relationship with Majority Leader Schumer and the White House is pretty well poisoned between these two senators, uh, both Cinema and Manchin, uh, and that they need to get back to those lines of communication being open more than trying to align on policy. I think policy is not the problem at this point. It's, it's questions about legislative strategy. Um, and that's why I believe the White House set their State of the Union, uh, the latest in memory, March 1st, to give them time to have some things done uh, before he speaks to Congress, before President Biden speaks to Congress. But, okay, come back to me here, Dan, because I want to try and pin you down a little bit harder. Will they get a version of Build Back Better passed in the first half of this year? I would put that at 75%. And how much money? 75%? You're north of a trillion dollars? North of a trillion, but I would probably say 1.2 to 1.4 if you had to put, put my guess on the board. Jeff, if we've got an inflation problem that we're trying to address, and you've got the Fed now starting to crank through these uh, rate hikes, what does it do that the fiscal side of the house is going to add another trillion dollar plus? Well, from my understanding is that they're going to claim that the um, that uh, 
more of that is paid for than previous than in previous stimulus bill. That that the net uh, effect on the deficit is is under a hundred billion uh, or so. Um, You're a and, pretty good economist. Would you buy any of that for a second? I, you know, I think it's a little iffy. I haven't I haven't pushed hard on that, but it's there's no doubt it's going to provide some stimulus. And so yeah, going to make the Fed's um, business a little harder. A, a little harder. Uh, Dan, there's still pressure about the Fed and how the Fed operates. Are you still hearing this uh, uh, hue and cry to audit the Fed and that Congress <laughs> wants greater supervision and control over the Fed? Look, you still hear that among some, el some elements. It's not as, uh, not as part of the uh, right-wing mantra as it used to be, the, you know, either audit the Fed, return to gold standard. You hear all sorts of, of crazy things. Uh, but look, there's a lot more scrutiny towards it. I think, though, the, the renomination of Chairman Powell avoided concerns over a Fed that would move even further to the left. Um, but still, a lot of people look at and say behind the scenes, the Fed embarked on a massive experiment with the economy. And whether that came down to the early stages of MMT, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but this is what the, the folks are saying, uh, that there's eyes on the Fed on how they get out of this and what the future of it is, depending on how they stick this landing and or thread the needle, as, as Mr. Lacker says, whichever uh, metaphor we want to use. What do you do at the Federal Reserve, um, Jeff, when you have an $8 trillion plus balance sheet? Um, how do you manage? I mean, you, you got the Federal Reserve now managing this $8 trillion plus balance sheet. You've got, uh, we, we certainly see Treasury issuance starting to fall kind of in April through the balance of the year. So it wouldn't be a bad time for them to stop buying. It's almost more of a neutral kind of a thing. But, but what does it represent to you that we've got $8 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet? It's humongous. Um, you know, the real way to think of the scale of that, though, is the size of the um, reserve balances in the banking system. Mm -hmm. um, and the way to think of the scale of that is relative to the, the liquid assets, the pool of liquid assets each bank has to hold uh, for sort of regulatory liquidity. Yes. And um, the Fed's, you know, half of that. Um, so they, it could go up, it could go down a little without affecting um, banks' portfolio choices too much. I think it's unhealthy, though, um, that right now they have a huge slug of mortgage-backed securities. It's um, pretty clear that the housing market is, is hot, too hot. Um, in fact, and so why they're trying to, why their portfolio is geared to provide further stimulus to the housing market, it just makes no sense at all. I, I think they're going to be in runoff mode. They're going to kind of try and craft some formulaic um, plan to just let maturing assets roll off um, and have the portfolio go down that way. The big danger is if they, if they started selling assets at a time when they're raising interest rates, uh, they would realize capital losses on that. And it would, it would be highly visible. It wouldn't affect uh, their um, book value um, because they've adopted some accounting uh, maneuvers, shall we say? I won't call them gimmicks. Uh, that let them. No, don't call them gimmicks. Yeah, please don't, don't call, call them, them gimmicks. gimmicks. No, <laughs> that, would be, that, would, that would be bad. <laughs> no, no, no. But, 
but they, you know, they would, they would face the situation where they're no longer remitting to treasury and they had, they'd have like a hole of, of capital losses that they would sort of basically have to earn their way into. Um, and uh, it would be highly visible. It would be politically uh, kind of a bit of a, a hassle for them. So they're not going to sell assets. They didn't sell assets last time. Uh, they're just going to r- run them off um, as they mature. Dr. Jay Bryson, who is a chief economist at Wells Fargo, also another great friend who appears on the forecast regularly. Thank you, Jay. Uh, thinks that that runoff will probably start in his best guesstimate sometime in the fall where they, and what we're talking about, um, ladies and gentlemen, is for that Fed's portfolio, it's, it's right now they're buying. And not only are they buying, but when a bond they hold matures, they're reinvesting those proceeds to maintain the size of their portfolio. So even when they stop buying, Jay Bryson thinks it will be October or November before they actually don't reinvest those proceeds when bonds mature. Does that seem right to you, Jeff, if they actually start hiking and, and wait that long to, to, to adjust? And should they? So the, the purchases will end in March, um, by the middle of March. Uh, I, I think they're going to um, provide themselves with a decent interval before they start rolling things off. I think they'll reinvest for a month or two. But it wouldn't surprise me if they started rolling off at the, at the June meeting, for example. I, I'm not sure they have a good reason to wait until um, the fall. The, the, the portfolio is way bigger than it was the last time they, they faced this choice. Um, and the sense of urgency about removing stimulus, I think, is much stronger now than it was then. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if they, they go earlier to start rolling things off. But the, we, they will give them a, a decent interval of like having a flat portfolio before they, they start rolling it off. You know, I talked with a Wall Street Journal reporter who covers the Fed, a guy you know, who suggested that the Fed is going from being data dependent as they talked always about being data dependent to data independent, that they're sort of made up their mind, they're going to do this. And now it's, you know, damn the torpedoes. Here we go. This is what we're doing. And we don't need to see the data. Is that right? I mean, it it feels right, actually. I, you know, if, if, if they got really good inflation prints in the first half of the year, if they got to June, and, um, you know, the first half of the year at an annualized rate was 2% inflation, you know, if miraculously wage pressure sort of dissipated, I think, you know, I think they'd respond and go slow, more slowly. But, you know, it's, it's always data interpreted within the context of a certain theoretical lens. And last year, what got them in trouble is responding to the data with a fair amount of certainty that there was a substantial amount of genuine slack in the economy at the first half of last year. That turned out to be completely wrong. Yeah. I mean, they were talking about maximum employment yeah. and they were thinking about a much higher labor force participation rate. I think over the course of the last year, they came to accept that the labor force participation rate we have now is the one we're going to have for a while. Um, but meanwhile, at the beginning of the year, they thought, this inflation can't be persistent because we have so much slack. So it's it's the data, but it's interpreted, you know, through a certain theoretical lens. And 
and, and that's where they got in trouble last year, I think. Um, I think they were, they were stuck on this idea that maximum employment was kind of far away from where we were. But like in the third quarter, the fourth quarter of last year, wherever maximum employment was, we were there or beyond. Yes. And I think they've admitted that. And I think they'll say something like that in the statement tomorrow afternoon. They'll say, you know, we're basically at, you know, maximum employment. You think this statement tomorrow afternoon is as, is as important as I do? I think it's his most important interview he's done since he's been chairman. Yeah, it's a big pivot. But the, the thing about the Fed in the past has been that they're sort of single threaded. They, they focus on providing accommodation and then they shift to focus on withdrawing accommodation and resisting inflation pressures. And it's the classic phrase is go stop policy, you know, and that, you know, when they're fighting inflation, they tend to go a little overboard. Um, they have to, the data lags mean that they don't really know if they're going overboard until it's too late. So it, this, this idea of a Fed that's just pivoting from fighting this to fighting that, you know, is a byproduct of the extent to which they, they try and do things gradually. They try and when they when they set out an interest rate tightening, they don't go to from zero to one and a quarter percent Fed funds rate in one meeting. They lay it out in steps. Um, that's always been reassuring to markets. Um, but the the consequence is that they're they're going down one path or they're going down another path, and 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 that gets them into trouble sometimes. I'm, I'm remembering the. I'm remembering the rip off the Band-Aid approach and how much I just think I'd prefer that right now. But anyway, Dan, go ahead. I, I think also, though, politically, as, as we're going back and forth on the timing of this, what's being lost is some of the bigger political issues. And I, I think the metaphor gets back to the scissors, the supply and demand side. On the supply side, though, the, the Fed isn't going to be able to make more housing. It can't uh, It can't get baby boomers right. to move to get more churn and in inventory. It can't fix... NIMBY laws uh, around the country. Uh, on the supply side, other issues, we have the Commerce Department report today that the country only has five days of inventory in semiconductors if there were some kind of interruption. On average, across the country, we have a five-day supply of semiconductors. Those are the things where, you know, when they said that they didn't, they, they anticipated more slack in the economy, I don't think they, they understood quite how narrow supply chains had become and how fragile they had become in our globalized just-in-time economy. And that that doesn't fit on an economic model neatly, nor can it be explained to the American people in an easy political way uh, or solved quickly. You know, it takes time to build houses. It takes time to build these factories. It takes time uh, to reshape this. So uh, in short of Jay Powell press ganging people to become truckers at the port of Long Beach, uh, some of these problems are on the Fed's lap and they can't solve them politically. Yeah. And the Longshoremen's Union has a uh, uh, negotiation coming up, contract negotiation coming up, I think, in the next month uh, or so, maybe six weeks. Um, and we'll have to see if, if how they do. I mean, imagine a strike there. Lots of things going on. So much to consider right now. We're running out of time, and this is so fascinating. Um, uh, Dan, would you comment? I mean, I'm I'm thinking about everything going on at the Fed, and of course, the markets moves are gyrating around. And 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 to say that they're uh, a distraction is a huge understatement. But we have uh, Russian troops on the border of Ukraine. 
We have uh, we had uh, Chinese fighter jets flying over Taiwan yesterday morning. We've we've got this um, overtime rule in the NFL. It all has me very distracted and worried. You know, I, I mean, these are the things that keep me awake. Uh, so why don't we uh, go ahead and let me try to work through the overtime rule on my own? And would you talk about <laughs> would you talk about well, Ukraine and China, please? Yeah, as long as you're not asking me about the baseball commissioner and the players' union either. Uh, the uh, no, Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine. I think is interesting because I, I'm I'm very worried about it. Uh, there's the the quote: "You can give it to Napoleon or Talleyrand. You you can do many things with bayonets, but you can't sit on them." And right now, Putin has built up this this massive force. Uh, the one thing that suggests it's not imminent, uh, what the Russians have done, they've moved in a lot of equipment. They haven't moved the personnel yet. So the, the equipment is in place, but it will not take long to get the, the personnel there. Uh, President Biden, you know, we talked about his recent press conference on Ukraine. Uh, some said, you know, he talked about, uh, you know, did he say the quiet part out loud about a, a minor incursion? I think that reflects a lot of difficulty in getting the Europeans on the same page. The, the Germans who are dependent on gas, uh, the, the Frankfurt and Paris banks dependent on Russian business, uh, all the places that depend on Russian oligarchs vacationing and sending their kids to school. We underestimate the financial and elite capture that the Russians have done in financial systems around the world. Uh, and as a result, the, the impact of sanctions, the idea of, of a swift cutoff, uh, I'm following that too, because in many ways, the U.S. Congress is actually more hawkish on Russia. But I don't think any of this solves the, the long-term challenge where Russia wants to reshape European security. I think in the mind of Vladimir Putin, he needs to recreate a buffer on the West uh, to secure Europe because he is also worried about the rise of China uh, as, as cordial as it may seem between him and Xi. Uh, and in the long uh, long run, we need to figure this out. But in the near term, be it uh, energy prices in Europe, the, the cutoff of gas would be extremely disruptive. Uh, simply look at how many cargo flights for the U.S. and our allies use Russian airspace uh, to get from Asia Pacific to the U.S. or to Europe. Uh, if that were cut off, that's a significant disruption to the global economy that, that's not even thought of. Uh, and the idea of war in Europe, which is something that we have not had uh, in our lifetimes, uh, is back again. The idea of NATO uh, and U.S. commitment to the region uh, questioned, uh, but we see also now the, the idea that we could be moving troops to the Baltics to shore up NATO, uh, but all this does is, is raise that risk of a, of a conflict sooner. Uh, on China, I'm a little less concerned in the near term, although it is uh, worrisome. Uh, one of my biggest fears would be a move on Taiwan uh, at the same time as a move in Ukraine, and I believe the only thing that prevents that right now is the Olympics and that uh, Xi Jinping would not want something like that going down while he's hosting uh, his big athletic winter party. So if we look at both of these conflicts, and we, and I think you're absolutely correct, uh, 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 Jeff, disagree, or, or, or if you like, but uh, that um, if the conflict heats up in Ukraine and there are sanctions, that would be a great headwind to European economic growth. Uh, Christine Lagarde said yesterday that they were not gonna coordinate their tightening 
of any or changing of their monetary uh, policy uh, in sync with the U.S. And uh, certain folks think it might lag by six or seven or eight months because the European economy is not showing the same robust growth or inflation that we're seeing in the U.S. If we see that, if we see Europe slow and, and continued supply chain issues with China, is that enough of an economic headwind, Jeff, to slow down or make the Fed readjust? You know, it's hard to gauge at this point. I don't have a good uh, crystal ball on that one. Um, I think that Europe, <clears throat> you know, is slightly is different quantitatively than the path we're on, uh, but not really qualitatively. They've provided fiscal stimulus. The inflation surge hasn't been quite as strong, uh, but the fiscal stimulus wasn't quite as strong either. Um, I think the ECB will uh, be forced to tighten policy in the next year or two um, going forward. And I, you know, I think globally, you know, that's going to mean, you know, in those economies, um, shrinking growth in demand um, and hopefully not contracting demand. Uh, because of the clock and what I'm seeing here, uh, Megan, you can correct me, but I think uh, let me just sum up and let's skip that second clip from Senator Nichols. And let me just suggest that he thought that um, President Trump uh, overplayed his hand and not in a good way with Georgia and the Georgia elections and other things, uh, voters fraud and other things, um, thought that that did damage uh, to the Republicans, uh, though uh, he thinks that the Republican Party still needs to find their way back to a party of fiscal conservatism and uh, that they've lost their way. Uh, and, and, and he thought that President Trump had uh, done damage to the party standing, particularly in Georgia. So, um, uh, Megan, if that makes sense to you, I'm going to just continue and I'm going to ask uh, Dan and Jeff here to wrap up and then we'll take questions if they're there, if that suits you. So um, that was my sum up for Senator Nichols. We can make that uh, video if you want to contact Megan, we can make his uh, full recording uh, and the end of it uh, available to all Hightower advisory firms. Um, so Dan, give us your quick view, if you would, and we've got to do quick and I'm going to finish mm -hmm. with Jeff, your quick view on the balance of 2022, what we see out of Washington in terms of policy, and of course, your give us your headcount and predictions for the fall election. I think the fall elections move to the Republicans. There's always that headwind traditionally of a midterm for any party in power. And I think it's exacerbated by the, the economic situation we face now. Uh, on top of that, the only thing I think that really changes my count in the Senate, it comes down to uh, candidate quality. Do the Republicans go with the, the MAGA out of the primary? Do Democrats go with someone far left? Uh, or do they try to find centrists in some of these contested states uh, to carry it out? Broader for 2022, I, I actually borrow my analysis from the uh, number three in the Chinese foreign ministry who gave his speech recently and said the four crises facing America. One, January 6th showed a, a collapse in our faith in democracy. Uh, the Omicron and Delta waves showed a collapse in our faith in science. Uh, the uh, economic situation and what we've seen with inflation uh, show the weakening of the dollar and the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, shows the weakness of the American security architecture. Those are the four headwinds that need to be answered this year. And I think that's lost 
and a lot of the culture war back and forth we're having. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see this agenda. There's still agreement on competition with China, uh, investments in things like semiconductors, uh, government reshaping supply chains, uh, but these security challenges, Taiwan, Ukraine, and, and don't think these are limited to those theaters. You could easily very well see cyber attacks on the United States uh, if any of these situations go wrong. Uh, we have to think about our resilience and we have to think long-term. Resilience and long-term. You mentioned that the State of the Union is gonna be much later. If you're President Biden or you are advising him as, your, as his senior strategist in the White House, you would be a good one, by the way, Dan. I hope if anybody uh, is listening from the White House, you probably really ought to try to hire Mahaffey. He'd be a big help for you. Uh, so Dan, what are his highlights? What does, he, what does he need to tell the nation? We've been talking about what Jay Powell needs to tell the nation and the world tomorrow. What does the president need to say at the beginning of March? Well, despite the inflation, the American Rescue Plan has kept the economy afloat in many ways. Uh, the child tax credit uh, reduced childhood poverty by rates uh, unseen uh, in American history. Uh, the package that they've passed on infrastructure is a historic bipartisan investment, uh, and that they should re be reorienting to uh, competition in the long run to strengthen the United States vis-a-vis -vis China uh, and to deal with the pressure from Moscow. Uh, we, we argue about the cat in the hat's gender while they expand their Navy and put probes on the other side of the moon. Uh, let's refocus and stop relitigating 2020 through 2016 and look to the future. And this is why they need Mahaffey, folks. I told you, <laughs> they just get Mahaffey and everything would be better. Mahaffey for president. What do you think, Jeff? Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you want to know something, uh, Jeff? The, the, the worst thing about Mahaffey is Why that not? he's not yet old enough to be president of the United <laughs> States. Can you believe that? He's not yet old enough to be president. Hard of the United to believe. States. Hard to believe. Yeah. Okay. The rest of the year, Jeff, give it to us and tell us how tightly we need to uh, buckle our seatbelts and um, and stay in our seats here through this turbulence. Um, I, I think it's uh, I, I think there's a good chance it'll be a choppier year than usual. I think the the um, the incoming data will have big effects. I think uh, in speculation about the pace of the Fed's tightening is going to dominate the interpretation of the data. I think that um, stronger inflation data will lead to um, you know sort of sell-offs and bonds and stocks and. Um, speculation that the pace is going to be stronger. And on the flip side, I think that um, weakening in any weakening in the labor market is going to lead to speculation that the Fed's going to uh, sort of sit on hands, pause a little bit, go slower. And I think those two, um, those two uh, polls are going to, are going to be pulling at markets over the course of the whole year. If the Fed raises 125 basis points, do they expect, do they understand that the 10-year could get to two and a half or 3%? Yeah, I think so. Um, and the, those wouldn't be crazy rates for the 10-year. Would you expect that for the end of the year? Could we see two and a half, three percent 3% by year end, do you think? I think we could. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, let me please, and all of my colleagues at Hightower, uh, on behalf of all of us, on behalf of our CEO and chairman, Bob Oros, 
Thank you so much, uh, Dan Mahaffey. Thank you so much, Dr. Lacker, for being with us and the Hightower audience today. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Farcast with Michael's guests, Dan Mahaffey and Dr. Jeffrey Lacker from Virginia Commonwealth University. Join us in upcoming weeks as we bring more insight from our regulars Kenny Polcari, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, Jim Labenthal, and more. And welcome scheduled special guest, Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy for SoFi, Jenny Harrington from Gilman Hill Investments, and more. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like us to cover. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings, with assistance this week from Natalie Wheeler, and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed and provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not office employees or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the Farcast with friends and colleagues. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller and Washington LLC is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representation or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements, errors, or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.